0: Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So maybe you're sitting and you're thinking and you're wondering, uh, Pastor, did did you pick that passage just because the word baptism is in it? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yes, that is exactly why I picked the passage. But it turns out it's an excellent final passage in sort of our January What Exactly Is the Church um, mini series. On January 7th, when we, uh, the first Sunday of the year, we dedicated this building to God. And we ask the question, like, if this is, what is this? What is the church? And we, we discover in Scripture that we, you and I, are the church. This building is not the church. Throughout the New Testament, even the Old Testament, when talking about the people of God, talking about uh, the gathering of God, synagogue, actually, in the Old Testament, the, the, the Hebrew word just means the gathering. And so whether there was a building or a structure or not, when people When God's people got together, they were synagoguing, they were gathering together. The church in the New Testament is simply the Greek word for the called out ones, those who are called out. It's not a word for a structure or a facility. It's a word that describes us when we come together. We are the church. We looked at uh, what it means to be the fellowship of the saints or to be in fellowship together. And it's more than just gathering together for potlucks and and men's breakfasts and, and cocoa and charcuterie boards. Although those are wonderful things and those help us in fellowshipping. But the fellowship of the saints is that we are partners together. We are partners in something larger than each one of us. And it's something more than any one of us alone could accomplish. The shining of the light of the gospel in each other's lives and in the community that God has placed us. We are called together to fellowship together, to partner in the gospel, to partner even in suffering, to partner in in giving and in, in caring for one another. And that led us to the very brief talk last week on stewardship of the kingdom. And thanks for not laughing. I know it wasn't a very brief talk. I was really just making a joke there, but I guess it's a little too sensitive and too soon. So I apologize. I'm sorry. But we did, whether brief or not so brief, we did discuss and discover through Scripture what does it mean to be stewards of God's kingdom, to realize that, like, I own none of this. I don't own my treasures. I don't own my talents. I don't even own my time. All of it is on loan from God. It is entrusted to me by God. How am I stewarding the gifts God has poured into me in a way that serves others and brings glory to God? And so this week, as we wrap this up, I wanted us to see this passage and be reminded that we are one. And, and Bono is right. We are one, but we're not the same. Uh, but we get to carry each other, carry each. Anyway, never mind. Does anyone, nobody hears that song when I say we're one, but we're not the same. It's a good song, you guys. You're only going to make it longer if you don't <laughs> respond well. All right, there we go. So, so what does it mean that we're one, that we're united together? So, for one, we have to like be reminded: like, first of all, we're covenant keepers, we're not consumers. Unity requires a different understanding of what it means to be the church. And it's not that we're a gathering of consumers, we are covenant keepers. That's that's an important piece of being one. Also, we want to see in this passage that yes. There's unity, but that doesn't mean unison. There's still diversity in the unity, and that's celebrated, and even God rejoices in it, and it was intentional that we would be different from each other even as we seek unity. And then finally, we want to recognize that this is not natural. That's not, it's not easy. Unity in the church, unity in the body is not easy because it's not natural to our fallen, sinful nature. But it's not hopeless. And so first we want to look at this passage. Paul says, as a prisoner, Paul's writing from prison to The church that he began in Ephesus. He's writing to the church, to the people. Again, he's not writing to a a building, but he's writing to the people and he's saying to them, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's not saying walk in order to earn a calling, he's saying walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've already received. It's all by grace. He spent the first three chapters explaining we are dead in our trespasses without God's mercy. If Christ has not died for our sins and been raised to life in a f- true and real resurrection, then our lives are hopeless. But he says, no, you've been called out of that. You've been chosen in love. God has, has called you to himself. To be his children. So what does it look like to walk as children who have been saved by God's grace? To, how, what, is, what does my walk look like if I recognize it's all by grace? It's not by my works. It's not by anything I've done. Well, he says, well, there's four things, even five, that will characterize your walk. There's patience, or excuse me, there's humility. First and foremost, a walk, walking in a manner worthy of the calling that God has called is a walk in humility. Literally, the word is lowliness of mind. I am low-minded toward myself. It is absolutely the opposite of pride. Humility helps me see my sin before I see your sin. He says, "Gentleness." It's almost these these pairs. As he says, "Walk." There's almost these two steps. So, f- the first step is humility. The second step is gentleness. Literally, it's the same word for meekness. But in in Western culture, in the U.S., like we assume meek is a synonym for weak. But meekness is an unwillingness to use strength to serve myself. Meekness is I. any strength I have is for you. I don't use my strength to serve myself. I definitely do not use my strength to damage others. It is a gentleness of the strong, not a weakness. Interesting, isn't it, that these two words, humility and gentleness, or humility and meekness, are the very two words that Christ uses to describe himself in Matthew 11, when he calls anyone who is hurting, anyone who is over burdened by life in this world. He says, come to me, you who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And do you remember what he says? I am meek and lowly of heart. Christ is meek and humble. Now, there's always that joke about, well, yes, he's humble. He has a lot to be humble about. Uh, That could never be said about Christ. Like, if there's anyone who did not need to be meek or humble, I would have to say it's the Son of God, creator of everything that's ever been created, perfect in His obedience, perfect, full of glory and majesty. I'm pretty sure He gets to put aside the meek and humble. Like, He gets to say, hey, worship me. And yet He embraces meekness... And humility. To walk in a manner worthy of a call that's been called by that God would be to walk in meekness and in humility. Second, though, the second pairing is, is similar, isn't it? In patience and forbearance. Because admittedly, meekness and humility, you would think, well, those are sort of just synonymous with one another. Well, the second two steps are also patience and forbearance, patience, literally long-suffering, recognizing that everyone's journey is a process, that everyone is somewhere on that journey, and they may not be in the same place that you are. and They may just need a little patience. That was unintentional, but now we've quoted Guns N' Roses too, if anyone's listening. Do we recognize that like, God delights in the process in each other? That God is glorified just in a couple of steps of growth. And are we, can we be patient with one another through that process or forbearance? We bear with each other. You notice these two, the first two were very internal-focused, humble and meek. That's about me and my attitude toward myself. Patient and forbearing is about my attitude not just toward others, but toward icky others. Like, you don't need patience at a green light. Have you ever noticed that? You're driving home, you hit every green light. When you hit the driveway, do you say... God, please give me patience. No, if anything, you hit the road and you're like, God loves me today. No, we pray for patience when there's an obstacle. We pray for patience when it's hard. We pray for patience when we have to wait, and nobody likes waiting. Forbearance isn't for the people you agree with. Forbearance isn't about the people that you get along so well with. For people who see everything the way you see it and do everything the way you do it. Bearing with one another, I know the word's been overused for decades, but bearing with one another, is a, there's a tolerance to it. It assumes, I don't like that, but it's not sin, and I just need to bear with you. Walking in a manner worthy of the calling that I've received by grace means that I am patient and I bear with others and all of it in love. All of it in love because it takes love, love for others too, to be truly humble, not falsely humble. It takes love for others to truly embrace meekness, not use Strength to serve myself, but use strength to serve others. And it takes so much love for others to be patient and to bear with each other. The difficulty is that we just have this mentality of of consumerism. And it's not even that we notice it. We're in a society that prides itself that we exist in a democratic model of government. You get to choose. You get to pick. Uh, The confession of faith that we use uh, in the Presbyterian Church was written in England in the 1600s, and it talks about uh, obeying the sovereign over you. that's a hard concept to translate to the United States when in Philadelphia there's plaques that come from signs and sayings early in the revolution that said, we serve no sovereign here. That's a frightening idea. That we serve no sovereign. We but we but along with that is our and I'm not, by the way, I like the democratic process. I think it's the, as they said, it's the best of all the worst choices you have for human government, but then also the capital, capitalist economic system, where there's a cost and a benefit, that there's supply and demand. It's, it, it instills in us, whether we realize it or not, a consumerist mentality. I get to choose. I choose who rules over me. I get to choose. I get to buy things. I get to purchase things. Like, consumers, you know, the best example of this is, uh, is the NFL. So, like, like, the contracts in the NFL are not covenants, are they? It's not a covenantal agreement that, that players and coaches and owners come to. It's a contractual agreement, And maybe you've heard the phrase, like, in the NFL, it's not, what have you done for me lately? It's, what are you doing for me now? You don't keep a quarterback that five years ago did great things for you. No, you got to get rid of that guy. He's doing nothing for you now. He's just taking up salary caps. Move that guy on. Get rid of him. Coaches, yes, fine, you won us six Super Bowls. Look at your record this year. Belichick, we do not want you here anymore. I don't care if you're the winningest coach in the NFL. You're the losingest coach this season. We don't need your kind around here anymore. Contractual. How many of our friendships are contractual? Contractual. We can't even get to, what have you done for me lately? We're stuck in, but what are you doing for me now? You know, the Christian community is really the last community that views the marriage as covenantal rather than contractual. I mean, everyone admits that there's a contract involved in marriage. Everyone admits that because that's why we signed the prenup contract. Because when this contract is no longer serves my purpose, I want out, and I want out cleanly. In the Christian community, he says, "No, I mean, sure, there's contractual ideas, but it's covenantal. It's I'm committed." As I tell young couples, like up until the wedding day, your love is driving you toward the commitment. Your love is driving you toward the covenant. But from the wedding day on, the covenant drives you to love. Your commitment comes first and reminds you I'm committed. I choose love today. I will be patient, I will forbear. I might even be a little humble and meek. We are united as a church. We are one because it is a covenant community. And it is a covenant community because of the oneness of God. Do you see how many times one comes out in that passage, in those verses, verses three to six? We're one body because there's one spirit. We're a single body of Christ because there's only one Spirit poured out. There's not a a bunch of Holy Spirits running around. There's one Spirit poured out into each of us, and so we're united. We're one body. There's one Lord. There's only one Lord. And so there's one hope, one faith, one baptism. No matter how you view baptism, baptism is a sign of God saying, I am. Choose you. No matter when you're baptized, it is a sign. It is a single sign because it is a baptism that points to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there's only one baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's not one for the reformed and correct people and then one for the not I'm sorry, did I, no, there's not one for the Reformed people and then one for the people who are not quite as Reformed and one pouring out for the, for the Catholic Church and one pouring out for the Anglican Church and one for that gr- weird Greek church that's like skabloosh, skabloosh, skabloosh. And you're like, holy cow, who does that anymore? So there's one baptism of the Holy Spirit and so there's one Because there's one Lord. That baptism points to one Lord who has saved us all by one sacrifice. And there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You can't find a more Trinitarian passage than this one that oddly says there's only one. There's one, there's one, there's one. But it's one Spirit, one Lord, one Father who is over all, in all, through all. The Father, God the Father, Is in you. If the Spirit of Christ is in you, somehow God the Father is in you. We are one because of the oneness of the God who has saved us. But even in the Trinity, this oneness doesn't deny diversity, but even more so in us, oneness, unity is not unison. I mean, you want in bands, you want them to play in unity. But if they continue to play in unison, it gets boring. You want choruses and choirs to sing in unity. You want them to be singing at the same time, hopefully off the same piece of music, hopefully at the same tempo. But you don't need them to be in unison. In fact, it's glorious when you get actually eight or more parts singing together. But it's not glorious if they're not united. God says, listen, I've, He's poured out His Spirit, Paul says here. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's why it says, when He ascended on high, He led hosts of captives and He gave gifts to men. Then there's a little parenthetical point. He's just, it's his quick throwaway of, hey, the incarnation is true, by the way. Like if it says he ascended, obviously he had to descend first. So yes, God, the Son, came to earth. He descended to earth. And so let's, but let's get back to our point here. There's one spirit, but he pours out a a diversity of gifts because the church needs a diversity of people. I know enough of you know enough about me to know this would be a horrific place to gather if there were even four Leonard's. It would be awful. Like, I would hate it. I'd be like, man, are those three guys egotistical. Holy cow. Anyway, we need a diversity of gifts God says, listen, like, he says, there's, there's all kinds of gifts. So, yes, there's, there's, there's prophets and apostles, there's, there's evangelists, there's, there's preachers and teachers, all of those. Did you notice all of those are like a teaching gift? They're all an instructional gift. Not everyone is a teacher. Not everyone is instructional. And, and he says, but the purpose of those is sort of foundational to equip you for the ministry, literally for the service of of one another, to equip you to deacon each other. Like these these gifts are here so that you are equipped and taught and trained and prepared for caring for each other. It's not all on the preachers and teachers. We, we exist, like your, your elders exist to prepare you and equip you to do these things. What are these things? Well, to walk in humility and meekness and patience and forbearance and love with each other. And it, it builds up the body. Like this equipping is so that we would serve each other so that the body of Christ would be built up until we attain unity. Unity. A unity of faith and a maturity in Christ. So yes, there is instruction still. There's still like, hey, let's understand what the Bible teaches, what the Bible says. This instruction isn't just for the sake of academic trivial pursuit night, though. This is instruct this instruction so that we grow in our faith, we grow in maturity in Christ, we grow in our unity. Because as we grow together, as we grow in Christ, we won't be tossed around. We won't be swayed by these things that the world that are constantly bombarding us, the lies of the world that say, hey, you're the most important person. I grew up in the 70s. There was this weird cartoon that the the theme song was, the most important person in the whole wide world is you, and you hardly even know you. And even as a kid, I was like, that doesn't seem likely. I mean, at least back then, I was far less egotistical. Now I might hear that song and be like, I can buy that. (laughs) But that's just it. We need each other to remind each other, hey, by the way, the most important person is not you. How about you calm down a little bit? We build each other up. That's actually building each other up in truth, but also pointing each other to Christ and say, actually, you don't have to be the most important person in the whole wide world. You are important to Christ. Christ died to save you. Pointing each other back to our need of Christ and that we actually have Christ and we don't have to keep earning his favor. We have his favor. Do you notice that the the unity here that Paul talks about, he says, it's not that you're going to obtain this unity. He says, you're to maintain This unity. It's already yours. The Holy Spirit has accomplished it. You just have to maintain it. You are stewards, in some ways, of the unity that Christ has accomplished. We work together. The whole body joined. We're held together by Christ, who's the head. In this imagery, He's both the head and the ligaments. He's like, you're held together by Christ when we are working together. Christ working through each of us and in each of us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. When each part is working properly, the whole body grows, building itself up in love. And so you're not the most important person in the whole wide world, but everyone is special in their own way. We make each other strong. We're not the same, but we're we're different in a good way. Together is where we belong. We're all in this together. Uh We are. I hate to say it, Disney's right. We're all in this together. I would urge you to spend some time today reading the rest of the chapter. That's where you find the the reminder that this isn't natural. If we fall back into natural, we'll fall back into pride, self-service, greed, deceitfulness. It's not natural, but it's not hopeless. Which is different from my high school musical dancing, which is both not natural and not hope- and hopeless. So, but our unity together, it isn't natural. But we don't need it to be natural. We need Christ. We need the Holy Spirit driving out those natural tendencies so that we might be built up together in love, forgiving each other. That's the end of chapter 4, forgiving each other, even as Christ has forgiven us. Let's pray. Father, you are over all, in all and through all. Lord Jesus, you have worked for us one hope, one faith, one baptism. Holy Spirit, you have made us one body. God, give us a unity that reflects your unity. That celebrates the diversity of gifts that you've poured out that embraces the walk of meekness and humility, of patience and forbearance, that you would unite us all together in love, that we would grow in our faith, in our understanding, and in our love for Christ and for each other, forgiving each other, even as we have been forgiven in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.